Good morning. Today's scripture reading is Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. Hear the word of the Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God, we thank you for Kevin. We ask you to open your word to us as he speaks. And let's be attentive. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, I want you to think back with me to the very opening of the Bible story when humanity lives with God in the Garden of Eden. And it is this place of beauty and flourishing and delight and everything is as it should be, but you remember there's one rule, or there's one law, we might say, and here's what we read. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. I'm not sure how you feel about rules and laws generally. I think some of us have a love-hate relationship with rules and laws. But it's important to see that according to the Bible story, that, that original law was a really good one. Uh, it's a good rule. God says, look, if you eat from this tree, you're going to die, and so don't eat from the tree. It, it's, a, it's a rule, it's a law that's meant to give life. It promises life. But you remember the story, what happens? It delivers death. Uh, you know, it's, it's not long before humanity stops trusting God. They... They resist his grace. They rebel against his love. They eat from that one tree. And do you remember what happens as a result? Uh, We could say condemnation enters the world. It starts with self-condemnation. Instead of trusting that they are loved, the man and woman, they see their nakedness and they cover up. You remember when God comes searching for them, they run and they hide in the bushes. They hide in shame. And then their self-condemnation shifts to condemnation of one another. When God asks, what's happened? What's going on here? Uh, The man condemns the woman for giving him the fruit from the forbidden tree. And the woman, for her part, condemns the snake for deceiving her. And the result of it all is death in the form of exile from the garden. And then east of Eden, you remember the Bible story unfolds as one of just kind of ongoing and ever-increasing condemnation. Well, it's a good thing that in 2024, we don't struggle with any of this anymore. (laughs) No, we do, don't we? I mean, we don't always call it condemnation. Uh, Sometimes we call it judgment and blame. Sometimes we call it war. Sometimes we call it cancel culture. Sometimes we call it holding a grudge. Sometimes we call it payback. Sometimes we call it a highly sophisticated, true, and right evaluation of another's character that just happens to be extremely negative. (laughs) 
but a rose by any other name is still a rose, and you can know this rose family by its thorns. I mean, condemnation hurts. It hurts. There's a lot of condemnation out there. We might say the world runs on this stuff. It runs on condemnation. Judgment and blame, it fuels our anger. It reinforces our divisions. And we just go through life kind of living with the shame and the hurt of it all. I wonder, um, I wonder what kind of condemnation you face this morning. Can you imagine what it would be like to live in a place where there is no condemnation? Today's the first Sunday of Lent. Uh, it's the season of the church year when we focus in a fresh way on the suffering and death of Christ for us. Uh, and, and it ultimately culminates in Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Uh, and so during this season, um, we are invited to kind of contemplate our own death and our own resurrection and union with Christ. And then we're invited on this journey of renewal toward new life with God. And so between now and Easter, we're going to be in Romans chapter 8. This is how we'll get at these themes, um, looking at this one single chapter. It's a chapter that many consider to be one of, if not the greatest chapters in all of Scripture. If the Bible were a topographical map full of like these beautiful and diverse landscapes, then the book of Romans would be one of the highest mountain ranges on that map. And Romans chapter 8 would probably be like the highest peak in that spectacular mountain range. And so let's turn to our passage. Let's dig into it by looking at what Paul tells us here. Um, he tells us what the law can't do. He tells us what God has done. And then he tells us what we can therefore now do in Christ. So what the law, those are the three points. What the law can't do, what God has done, and what we can do in Christ. If you look again at verse 3, you'll notice Paul mentions the law not being able to do something. And he might have in mind the opening of Genesis. The law that promised life, it did not bring life. Maybe it couldn't bring life. But the word that Paul uses here is Torah. Paul isn't just talking about God's first commandment about that tree. He's talking about like, the entirety of God's law. You remember in the story of God's people, the law, it's supposed to be this really good, beautiful thing. It's supposed to be this life-giving reality. It's meant to help God's people live lives of holiness and love before God and before their watching neighbors so that, so that through God's people, like, the whole world would be blessed and come to know, like, the goodness and grace and kindness of God. Uh, and, and so let's be clear, like, it really is a good law. It's holy and it's just and it really does promise life. But what Paul has come to see is that God's good law never delivers what it promises. And when you read through the Old Testament, this becomes like painfully clear over and over again. Rather than leading God's people to be a blessing to the nations, you remember the law becomes like a barrier between them and the nations. And rather than healing the idolatry in their hearts and rather than healing the injustices in their communities, the law just exposes it and it exacerbates it. It's like over and over again, what we see Israel doing is just kind of reenacting the sin of Adam and experiencing the consequences of that sin. I mean, they're even, you remember, Israel is even exiled from the land just like Adam was exiled from the garden. They, they, they're playing out the same 
human story. The problem is, Israel is composed of people just like Adam. And all that the law, Paul realizes, all that the law can do with people like Adam is produce more and more sin and more and more death. And so this isn't a Jewish problem. This is a human problem. It's like through Israel, God was bringing humanity's problem into sharp focus. And one way to think about the problem is, is, I mean, it's just simply to say, like, we are not the people we're supposed to be. Uh, We're not the people we were made to be. We're not the people we want to be. The power of sin and evil and our own propensity toward all kinds of selfishness and self-centeredness is always undermining our best efforts to be good and to do good. Have any of you read um, Franz Kafka's book, The Trial? Do you know this book? Um, I don't know why I read this book, but I read it uh, like four or five years ago. It's, I don't necessarily recommend reading it, but um, in it, uh, there's a character, Joseph Kay, and on his 30th birthday, he's put on house arrest. And, uh, and from there, he awaits his trial, but he's never told what he's arrested for. He doesn't know his crime, and, and so at first he just kind of tries to dismiss the problem and rationalize it, and he says, surely this must be some kind of mistake because I'm basically a good person. But the longer the, the house arrest drags out, the more time he has to reflect on his life and to review it, like everything he's done, everything he's failed to do, and he just begins to wonder, oh gosh, was this it? Was this it? Was that it? Um, I mean, he realizes that he could be on trial for any number of transgressions. Uh, Dishonesty, cutting corners to get ahead, manipulating others, failing to care well for others. I mean, on and on. And eventually, he's just completely overwhelmed by anxiety and guilt and this deep sense of condemnation. Kafka meant this to be a parable uh, for our modern world. He said... um, This is a paraphrase, but he basically said, the problem with modern people is that we've gotten rid of guilt, but we still feel like sinners. Um, You know, as Western modern people, what are we told? We're told, I'm okay, you're okay. Uh, You can do anything if you put your mind to it. Uh, You're wonderful just the way you are. Like, we have these messages, but Kafka's right. I mean, Kafka saw through all of that. He says, no, deep down there is a trial and we have this sense of falling short and coming under condemnation. Kafka had no real answer to this. The Apostle Paul did. In Romans 2, he says, even if you're not Jewish and you don't know God's law, you still have in some way like the law written on your heart. And, and that has the power to condemn you, he says. Like on some level, you know, um, you know right from wrong, You know what love requires. You know the person you want to be, the kind of spouse you want to be, the kind of parent you want to be, the kind of friend and neighbor you want to be. And do you measure up? See, see, family, there's, there's no escaping this. There's no escaping the law. And the problem is the law doesn't bring life. It brings condemnation and death. Not because the law is flawed, but because we're flawed. You know, legend has it that uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle of Sherlock Holmes fame once sent a telegram to 12 
of his closest friends with four words, flee, all is revealed. Gosh, what, what would you do if you got that telegram? Um, legend has it that within 24 hours, half of those friends had fled the country. I mean, what would you do if all were revealed? Chances are, for each of us, there's something, there's something that would send us running for the fig leaves. All of us can relate to feeling like we're on trial. I mean, for some of us, the trial might be very conscious. Maybe you're a perfectionist. Maybe you're a workaholic. Maybe you're very sensitive to criticism. Like, the trial is just always kind of right there at the surface of your life. Others of you might be way more chill. Um, but the trial is still there deeper down. Like, on some level, you hear the accusing voices. Maybe it's the voice of a parent or the voice of your boss or... Or maybe it's just the voice of your own conscience reminding you of your, your failures, reminding you of your wrongdoing. The accusers are always there. Like, what do we do with that? What do we do with our guilt and our condemnation? A therapist might say, don't feel guilty. Just embrace who you are. Kafka says, that doesn't help. I mean, get rid of guilt and the shame is still there, and that can be way worse because now you just don't have any idea like where it's coming from or what to do with it. Religion says, like, you are guilty and you are condemned, and so, like, do better, right? Like, shape up. But all, of, all that does is create a life of hypocrisy, a life of hiding. See, the trouble is that the law can condemn sin, but it can't give life. It can expose sin. It can, it can reveal it, but it can't cure it. This is what Paul wrestles with, by the way, in, in Romans chapter 7. And if you want a homework assignment, none of you want, wants a homework assignment. But if, if you did, you could go home and you could read Romans 7 sometime this week. But here at the opening of our passage, Paul says something breathtaking. I mean, it is a high peak in a mountain range. He says that now, right now, right now, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. How can this be? Look again at verses 2 and 3. Here's what Paul says. The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin he condemns sin in the flesh. Did you hear that, family? What the law is incapable of doing, God has done. He's done it. And what, what is the law incapable of doing? It's incapable of delivering what it promises. It's incapable of giving life, of bringing life. Not because it's flawed, but because we are. Um, all it could ever bring for people like Adam and people like Israel and people like you and people like me is more condemnation and guilt and death. But now Paul says God has brought life. And look at how he's done it. By sending his son. By sending his spirit. I mean, God steps in and he makes our, prom our problem his own. Takes responsibility for it. God enters into his creation as a human being, Jesus, um, who is just like us. Um, I mean, I think that's what Paul means here by the light in the likeness of the flesh. He's, Jesus is just like us. Um, except that 
at all the places where Adam and Israel and you and I resist God's love and stop trusting God's grace, I mean, Jesus just received it and he rested in it and he lived his whole life out of that place of radical security. And because he received the love of God so well, he was able to share it so well, perfectly. I mean, he, here was one person who really loved God with all of who he was and who really loved the people around him um, as himself. Like, here's one person who really kept God's good law. Family Jesus fulfills the law. Jesus fulfills the law. And, and you might think, well, gosh, if Jesus fulfills the law, that means that Jesus lives this life free of condemnation. And he would, except that so much of our sin just takes the form of condemnation. So much of our sin just is condemnation. I mean, we, we condemn each other, and we condemn ourselves, and sometimes we even condemn God. And at the end of his life, we see Jesus um, taking it all. And he's condemned by Judas and his betrayal, and he's condemned by Peter and his denial, and he's condemned by the rest of his disciples as they run away in fear, and he's condemned by Pilate and then by the crowd as they cry out for his crucifixion, and he's condemned, you remember, by the soldiers when they, um, they beat him and they spit on him and they take the thorns of condemnation and they force it onto his head. And then they nail him to a cross, and then the condemnation doesn't stop. I mean, he's, if you read Mark's gospel, like, he's just condemned by literally every single person who passes by. He's mocked and scorned and ridiculed. Our world runs on condemnation. And Jesus um, receives it. God, as Jesus, receives it. He takes it onto himself and into himself. And, and you see, family, that just means that God takes the condemnation of the world. He takes the weight of sin and death. And Paul tells us that by doing this, God was condemning sin in the flesh of Jesus. You know, it's interesting. One, I think one of the songs we sang um, got it a little bit wrong, and one of them got it right. But uh, Scripture doesn't say that Jesus was condemned. Scripture says that our sin was condemned in the flesh of Jesus. Um, what we're seeing is like the ultimate condemnation of condemnation. And so now, therefore, Paul says, like because of all of that, there is no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. Like you are free. You're free. Now, for most of you, I know this isn't a new idea. I mean, most of you have heard that in Jesus Christ, you're forgiven, you're set free from sin, you're no longer condemned. But do you see what it means? Um, no condemnation. I think a lot of us live our Christian lives something like this, like you receive Christ and you're forgiven and then you go out and you try to live some kind of Christian life as best you can, but then inevitably you mess up, you have a bad day, and then what happens? Like you fall right back into condemnation. So you go back and maybe you jump through some religious hoops that get you to a place of feeling like you're all right. And then for a while you maybe can live in that place, but it's not long before you go out and you fail to live faithfully. 
and then you're condemned again. Uh, we have, as you know, this little puppy who is ruining my life. Uh, but uh, this puppy hates the rain. And, uh, and, and we really want him to do his business outside. Um, and, and because Livy and I are probably not the greatest dog owners, instead of like developing character in our pet, what we have done is we've purchased an umbrella. <laughs> and, and, and when it's raining, and his name is Indy, when Indy needs to go outside and, and do his business, yeah, we walk out there with him in the umbrella. And so he walks in the rain under the umbrella that Libby or I is holding. And, and when he steps out from under it, uh, he gets wet. And when he stays right beside us, he keeps dry, sometimes wet, sometimes dry. He's learning. But uh, so many of us feel like we're moving in and out of condemnation all the time, like sometimes condemned, sometimes not. I don't know if this works as an illustration, by the way, but I heard a request for more puppy illustrations, so I'm trying. Um, the point is, the point is, this is not what Paul means. He, he's, he doesn't envision the Christian life as like this, this kind of thing where you're always waffling back and forth, sometimes wet, sometimes dry, sometimes moving out of condemnation, sometimes moving back into it. Um, that's, that, like, that's the religious life. That the idea that through my moral behavior, I need to keep myself in God's good graces. No, when Paul says that there is no condemnation, he means condemnation is finished. It's done. It's done. Um, the rain has stopped. The trial is over. You are completely, eternally free. And this is what God has done. This is God's gift to you. So we've seen what the law can't do. It cannot give life. It can't give the life it promises. It can't deliver it. We've seen what God has done. Like he has freed us from condemnation by sending his son and spirit. By the way, um, the reason we're so light on the spirit this morning is we're going to be talking about this a lot next week. Um, but now, what does Paul tell us we can do in Christ? Look again at verse 4. Paul tells us that God has done all this in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And so this sets up everything that's to follow. But it might come as a surprise. Uh, you might think that the whole point of the gospel is to undo the law, or you might think that God sends his Son and Spirit so that we can leave the law behind. But no, look, um, God sends the Son and Spirit so that we can, Paul says, fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. And that might sound really stuffy and like, oh gosh, what does that mean? I need to start living, like, what does that mean? Well, Paul tells us what it means later in Romans. He says, fulfilling, fulfilling the law means living a life of love. It just means loving. He says, Paul says, if you do that, you have fulfilled the law. And so God has freed us to live out our true vocation as, as image bearers, like loving God, loving others, and walking according to the Spirit. So this is what we'll talk about more next week. But family, do you see it? I mean, this is what you were made for. This is what you were made for. Um, there is a place of no condemnation. And that place is a person. 
And that person is your home. He's your home. Um, You are invited to abide in him. You're invited to abide in him. How do we do that? I like how Dale Bruner puts it. He says, to be in Christ means to be in fellowship with or to be the companion of or to be in companionship alongside him. In other words, like in Christ is a relational term. Uh, And so God, you know, there's so much about the atonement and how God deals with sin in this, but God doesn't like, God doesn't give us like some set of theological theories to subscribe to, to embrace and adopt. He doesn't give us dogma about justification and sanctification that we have to get just right. He gives us Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ just does really earthy stuff. Like he invites us to come to a table and to share a meal with him. And in this meal, uh, Jesus gives us nothing less than his very self. And so let's pray. And let's come to this table.